Welcome, everyone. It is uh, today's going to be an interesting day. We are delighted to welcome Vivek Ramaswamy to the program. He, of course, is an entrepreneur and Republican candidate for the 2024 U.S. presidential elections. He has very kindly uh, agreed to come in here for a little interview, and we are delighted to have him. I'll tell you more about him. He needs very little introduction. Now, if you haven't, uh, if you're not aware of Vivek, you must be living under a rock or something. Uh, you can more about him if you wish at Vivek V I V E K 2024.com. Vivek 2024.com. Let's get right to it. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I want to share with you a teeth whitening system that goes beyond merely enhancing your smile. Primal Life Organics Real White Teeth Whitening System offers convenience and rapid results without harsh chemicals. Light, blue light for whitening, red light for gum and oral hygiene, and you can just do both if you wish. Works naturally, promoting gum healing, tooth remineralization, gives you a brighter and a healthier smile. Again, no peroxide involved. Consistent usage yields remarkable results. Take this opportunity to transform your smile and at the same time, optimize your oral health. Aim for five times a week for the best outcomes. Discover more about this remarkable teeth whitening system and other products at drdrew.com primal today. That again is drdrew.com P-R-I-M-A-L. Be sure to use that link for 60% off drdrew.com P-R-I-M-A-L. Do it today for 60% off. You can spend thousands of dollars trying to look a few years younger, or you can skip all of that hassle and go with what works. Genucel Skincare. Genucel is the secret to better skin. In fact, you might have witnessed the astonishing effects of Genucel during a recent unplanned moment on our show when just a little Genucel XV restored my skin within minutes right before your eyes. That's how fast these products work. I know I'm a snob about the products I use on my face. Everybody knows it. Every time I go to the dermatologist's office, they're just rows and rows of different creams. And then when I get to the counter, they're overpriced. All kinds of products that you can all find at GenuCell.com. Susan and I love GenuCell so much, we've created our own bundles so you can try our favorite anti-wrinkle treatments, correcting serums, and ultra-retinol creams. Just go to GenuCell.com Drew. Use the code Drew for an extra discount and free priority shipping. Again, that is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash D-R-E-W. So let's get on with this. As I said, Vivek Ramaswamy coming in here, Republican candidate. Uh, he is, in addition to an entrepreneur, having founded a biopharmaceutical company, he is a best-selling author, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, Nations of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and the path back to excellence, uh, also capital capitalist punishment, how Wall Street is using your money to create a country you didn't vote for. Vivek2024.com to find more. You can also follow him on Twitter, Vivek G. Ramaswamy. Vivek, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's good to be on, Drew. It, it feels to me like one of your uh, main, I don't want to say preoccupations, but uh, messages is sort of embodied in the death of merit uh, in the sense that you, I, 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 when I hear you speak, I, I'm, fam, you know, I hear you talk about wanting to get ba back to basic principles of what, upon which this country is founded. But within that is that ability to thrive as a human and to achieve and to be rewarded for your merit. Is, is that a core principle for you? It's a foundational principle for me. It's what allowed me to get ahead in this country. Like My parents came to this country with almost no money a little over 40 years ago. I've gone on to found multi-billion dollar companies. I'm now 37 years old. I'm the youngest candidate I think ever running seriously, at least for president, self-funding my campaign. That's the American dream. And I think that what I'm worried about is that that American dream doesn't exist for my kids, not their generation. They're taught to see themselves as victims rather than people who actually conquer their hardships. 
And I think that that's a cultural progression in our country. That's an assault on merit itself. My, my dad had a saying when we were growing up, it's sort of a cheesy dadism when we were growing up, but there's actually a lot of truth to it. You know, I was growing up as the kid of immigrants, funny last name. My dad had an accent growing up in Southwest Ohio. My mom was a psychiatrist. My dad was an engineer. And, you know, what he used to say is, you know what, if you're going to stand out, you might as well be outstanding. And as trite mm-hmm. as that might have sounded, that was actually my ticket to get ahead in this country. Excellence was my path as an American. And I think that is the American way. The way I think of meritocracy, what does it mean? Is it's just a system where anyone, no matter who they are, gets ahead on the basis of their own God-given potential, they can maximize it. Whether it's on a sports field or a classroom or as a musician, you're able to maximize your own God-given potential without any man or man-made system getting in the way. And you're right. That is a core, I would go so far as to call it, uh, over the last several years, preoccupation of mine. Yeah, I, I, I see that uh, sort of sort of infecting many of, the, many of the opinions you have. What would you tell people who've lost faith in that phenomenon? Uh, they they've either feel that there's something about the system that's rigged against them, or they've been taught that that's the case. What do you, what do you tell them? What I tell them is, have we been perfect in living up to our ideals as a meritocracy in the United States? We have not. But as a nation, I do think we're the last best hope for meritocracy on planet Earth. It is why the immigrants who come to this country, including people like my parents, come here like magnets. When you open the doors, the flow is going in this direction rather than the other one, in part because people come here to this country to get ahead based on their hard work and commitment and dedication. Have we fallen short? Yes, we have. Great. Let's level up and fix that. You know what? It starts at a young age, for example. A lot of the very students who struggle later in life did not have access to high quality early education. That's why I'm an unapologetic proponent of universal school choice in this country. So every parent, regardless of the zip code that their kids are born in, still have an opportunity to send their kids to the best possible school so they can maximize their potential. We can talk about other ways we create the conditions for true pursuit of excellence and true meritocracy. But I think the fact that we've fallen short of our ideals is no reason to abandon those ideals in the first place. In fact, I think our worst hypocrisies versus those ideals are still our best evidence that we have ideals at all. It's interesting how nobody will call China or Iran or Pakistan, for that matter, a hypocrite. To be a hypocrite, you had to have ideals. I think that's why you, as the United States, we should be proud to have ideals that are so aspirational that yes, as human beings, not gods, we will fall short of them, but it's our job to keep pursuing them. And this is the country on earth where I think we're most able to do that. You know what I I worry about? I I worry about uh, what I'll just sort of put under a large heading of intergenerational transmission of trauma. And it just seems to me, I I don't know if you get this into your, your victim book. Unfortunately, I have not read that one yet. Uh, but people that start to feel like victims usually came from highly traumatic backgrounds, not necessarily they themselves, but their family systems. And that's, I I feel like that's where people are asking us to sort of understand or pay attention or uh, try to figure out what that is. There's woke ink up on the screen right now. It's your current book. But for instance, I, this is sort of a roundabout way of, or factory meandering way to get to this question. I'm not even sure if it's a question. I just wonder your thoughts on it. I feel like a, a major issue in the African-American community is reconstruction. That the violence perpetrated really by the governments of the states and the South during reconstruction was so profound. Frederick Douglass spoke to that explicitly. He kept saying, we've given up the, the lash for the shotgun, that people are being killed indiscriminately. And that period of history was so vicious and so awful and so traumatic i believe we've watched that from our consciousness and we have a bunch of people walking around with the traumatic remnants of that on their sense of who they are and what they're trying to do in life do you have any thoughts about that i I do have thoughts on that i i'm you know i i understand where you're starting with that i might have a slightly different view on it which is that actually i think that we're seeing something else happen in the country where people are seeing themselves more as victims today 
than they did, even at points in our history in the past, when we were less okay. perfect at offering equal rights. So, I can so give you an example were from the- When we actually were victimizing. When we actually were victimizing people. Yes, exactly. Actively exactly. victimizing people. Okay. Exactly. All so right, so, so I'll, 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 go to the, I'll go to the black experience in a second, but first I'll start first personally where I see this in the Indian American or Asian American community, where my parents were the members of the generation that actually took real risk that packed their bags, went halfway around the world without a dollar or very few dollars in their pocket, came to this country, different language, no cell phones back then, different culture, different acceptance of immigrants and foreign cultures than even today. They went through hardship. They taught my generation. I grew up in this country under, under simpler circumstances than they did, but still, you know, wasn't born with a silver spoon. We're taught to believe that hardship is not the same thing as victimhood. That's what my parents taught me. You're going to go through hardship, hardship, is not a choice. Victimhood is a choice, and you should choose the other thing. Now, what I'm seeing is my in my kids' generation, and my kids are young, but I'm talking about nieces, nephews, and the other peers in, in the next generation, second generation. So you got the immigrant, you got the first generation, and the second generation, that's actually the generation that's now taught to see themselves as victims, to call themselves now in the Asian American community, you see this term popping up, I'm a person of color. And what is a person of color taught to be low on the totem pole of the victimhood hierarchy? Why? It's because we've turned victimhood into a currency in its own right. So in a certain sense, they have an incentive to see themselves as victims. I think there's something similar going on in the black community as well. But you know, I think that I'm going to talk about it from the first personal experience that I see. In a certain sense, our national history of success is what begets the victimhood psychosis, psych psychology. You know, in a certain sense... You, you uh, have the wheels of history turning, right? Success breeds entitlement. Entitlement breeds a certain kind of laziness, if we're honest about it. And then victimhood fits laziness like a glove. So it becomes a justification for the sloth of a society that's already in some ways living in an embarrassment of riches. And I think the irony is that the people who in many cases see themselves as victims today weren't a product of that very hardship. I was on a, you know, I've had a little bit of, I haven't been able to engage her directly in debate, but she talks about me a lot on her show. Someone, Joy Reid, some MSNBC host who has brought me up a couple of times on her show. She talks about how after the affirmative action ruling came down from the Supreme Court, how she wouldn't have gotten into Harvard without affirmative action. I, I believe that's true. I think she would not have gotten into Harvard without affirmative action. I agree with her. But <laughs> the interesting thing is her parents, like my parents, were also immigrants to this country. So they were not the descendants of slaves. And so what you're seeing is actually many people who are not at all the descendants of slaves trying to reinvent their identity through the lens and prism of victimhood so they can wield it like a chip, like a currency, as a way to get ahead. And that's in part as a response to the societal incentives that we've created, because it's true, you do get ahead on the basis of wielding your victimhood status today, often even more so than exhibiting hard work and commitment and dedication, regardless of the color of your skin. So in some ways, I don't even blame the so-called self-fashioned victim. I'm not blaming the victim or the victim pretender. I'm blaming a system that we've created in this country that rewards victimhood as a currency. And that's why I think we look ourselves in the mirror, we should, as leaders, as institutional leaders, as person who's led companies now running to lead this country, to say, how do we actually reward excellence? How do we actually reward hard work and commitment and dedication over genetically identifiable victimhood. And I think that's what's going to be better for our country to move forward out of the existential malaise that we're in today. And my sense is you do not uh, back away from challenges or from uh, opportunities to, to debate or reach out. Have you reached out to the African-American community? Do they, are they willing to debate you? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is that there is no one African-American community, you know, just as there is no one Indian-American community. And what I found is that there's <clears throat> Who'd have ever thought? A diversity of perspectives amongst people who have the same shade of melon. That being said, you know, in, in the sense that you're asking the question, absolutely, right? I, I was on the Breakfast Club earlier this week, not exactly a place where Republican presidential candidates traverse, right? Three black hosts, all of whom are liberal. Yeah. I, I'm wondering uh, if you, was, I imagine you learn stuff. Yeah. I imagine you learn stuff when you go into those environments. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I learn stuff in every environment yeah. I go into. But I yeah. didn't grow up in the yeah. same environment that a bunch of evangelical Christian farmers in Iowa grew up in either. I yeah. learned something from those environments that's different than the one I grew up in. Same thing when I went to the south side of Chicago. Again, not a place where even Democratic politicians go, let alone Republican ones. I visited the south side of Chicago to the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia, 
to the podcasts and, and radio programs that we go on, we reach as many communities as we can. I'm not running to lead a political party or an identitarian faction. I'm running to lead a nation and hopefully what we will still call the United States of America. I believe we can be united, but in order to be united, I think we have to be able to see the shared cultural challenges we face with clear eyes to grapple with those challenges, to look ourselves in the mirror, ask ourselves what role each of us played in creating the conditions of, of deep-seated division that we suffer in the country today and reckon with that. And I think the path isn't you know, around that. It is through that reckoning. That's a big part of what I'm trying to lead in this campaign. I, I was interested to learn that you're married to a head and neck surgeon. So I hear, yeah. I'm sure you hear the the woes of medicine every night at the dinner table or when you guys try to watch TV at night. But I, I may get into that in a second. I could regale sure. you with that all day. But but I want to hear more of the some ideas that you're you're promoting that I think the average listener will be interested in. Um, Ukraine, you have a plan for that? I do. It's part of a broader foreign policy vision of achieving our top objective as the United States, which I think should be to deter China from going after Taiwan without going to war over it, at least as it relates to foreign and military policy. That's a top objective. I think we can end the Ukraine war on terms that better advance that objective. Here's how. The top military threat that the US faces today is actually the China-Russia alliance. These are two nations that are in a military partnership with one another, not very well appreciated and rarely discussed in either political party. So what I've said is we need to pull that alliance apart if we can, because Together, China and Russia outmatch us. Russia has the largest nuclear stockpile in the world, hypersonic missile capabilities ahead of both the US and China. China has the second largest economy. It's a contiguous landmass, naval capacity in the South China Sea that's ahead of that of the United States. That's a real military risk. They had a 2001 Treaty of Good Neighborliness and Cooperation. They called it 2022 a No Limits Partnership. This is a problem. So what I've said is I would end the Ukraine war through a negotiated settlement that freezes the current lines of control, a Korean War style armistice agreement. I would go further and make a hard commitment that NATO will not admit Ukraine to NATO, which is what Putin actually asked for before he invaded, right. just a matter of months before he invaded Ukraine. But in return, we get something more valuable. Putin has to exit his military alliance with China. That's the most important part. And some additional things I demand as well move the nuclear weapons out of Kaliningrad, the region of Russia that borders Poland, get any Russian military out of the Western Hemisphere, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and so on. That actually is pro-stability in the world. It moves from a bilateral international order now that favors China to a trilateral one, where none of the three major nuclear superpowers are allied with one another. And right now, Xi Jinping, his confidence to go after Taiwan is that Russia's in his camp, because his calculus is that the U.S. will not want to go to war with two different allied nuclear superpowers at the same time. And maybe he's right about that. But the key is, if Russia's not in his camp, he's actually going to have to think twice before invading that island. Why is that island more important than Ukraine? It's because we depend on Taiwan, unfortunately, the reality is, for our modern way of life. The advanced semiconductors that power the computer through which we're having this conversation, the cell phones in our pockets, are made on that tiny island nation off the southeast coast of China in the South China Sea. And my view is that we cannot take the risk of having China squat on that island, but we also can't take the risk of going to war with China. I think that's not going to be good for us and it's not going to be good for the world. Most importantly, it's not going to be good for Americans. So how do you do that? I think ending the Ukraine war on terms that pulls Russia out of that partnership with China is my vision for getting this done. I have high confidence in my ability to deliver this because Putin does not enjoy being Xi Jinping's little brother. This is a deal that he would do. And yet the mystery to me is that nobody, neither the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, is offering, let alone a solution, even identifying that as a source of the problem. It's part of why I think it will take an outsider to get this job done. I am an outsider. I think that's what it's going to take in order to deliver peace on terms that advance our interests. Let me just take that one step further and say, uh, I'm guessing... Uh, you're a game theoretician. The uh, game theory was something you had to practice on a regular basis as an entrepreneur. Let's say you're applying to to me for the job of negotiating these incredible geopolitical um, uh, treaties, let's call them. 
Um, what, what are your, how would you evaluate yourself? Why, why should you get that job? Yeah, I'm interviewing with you and everybody who's watching this and every American across this country. That's exactly what this is. So I think I have the deepest understanding of anyone who has run for president in the last generation to do a few things. Not, not a lot of things, but a few things. One is how to shut down the administrative state here at home, how to restore three branches of government in this country, not four. And if you share my perspective that that is a grave threat to constitutional liberty and to the three-branch system of government that we have in this country, then you'll appreciate that shutting down the administrative state is an important function that no Republican has in 40 years risen to the occasion of actually delivering on. I could talk to you about why, but I have the deepest understanding on statutory and constitutional grounds of how to actually get that done. I think the same goes for how we declare independence from China in a way that does not harm us in economically here at home. I would re-enter the trade relationships with Japan, South Korea, India, Vietnam, much of Southeast Asia, Australia, and have a clear vision of how to do that in a way that breaks apart the orthodoxy of onshoring exclusively to the United States versus continuing to stay in bed with China. There's a third way. I think I also have a deep understanding and I've spent much of my recent years after my post-business career thinking deeply about how we revive national pride in the next generation of Americans. I'm the first millennial ever to run for U.S. president as a Republican. It is both my job and my capability to reach that next generation of Americans with that sense of civic identity, civic pride, national pride that they're missing. I think every high school student in this country should pass and should be able to pass the same civics test that every immigrant has to pass in order to become a citizen of this country. I think that in one of the ways we deliver national pride is that people tend to be more proud of a country where they're making more money in that country. And in terms of delivering economic growth, that's not a message you hear from candidates in either party today. I understand how to unlock GDP growth from less than 1% this year to over 4%, where it'll be by the end of the first term. Unlock American energy, put people back to work by stopping paying them to stay at home, reform the U.S. Federal Reserve, make the dollar stable, make that the sole mandate of the Federal Reserve, and then shut down the administrative state, as I said, the regulatory state that shackles most businesses. So that much I know how to get done. And so if you believe those are important objectives, and that's crucial, that you have to believe that the administrative state is a problem. You have to believe with me that China and our dependence on China is a problem. You have to believe with me that national pride is worth reviving, especially amongst young Americans. You have to believe with me that economic growth is worth pursuing. But if you believe in those things, then I think I'm the single presidential candidate who both understands how to get these things done and to do it not just as an academic, though I do have an academic side to my career. I've written you know, three books just in recent years. You, you know, read a bunch of the articles, et cetera, I've published and you know, educated in ways that will empower me to do this as a visionary, hopefully, but not just as somebody who has a vision, but who also knows how to execute. I've built multi-billion dollar businesses from scratch. I did not inherit my wealth. It was through hard-earned living of the American dream, not one time over, but several times over. Royvent, the biotech company that I led that has five FDA-approved medicines that I personally oversaw that the rest of pharma had actually really lost the plot on. We got those medicines approved in a way that the rest of pharma would not. Strive Asset Management, actually competing with the largest financial institutions in the world, built that from scratch to compete against the likes of BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard. So I've done this time and again. I know how to execute and get things done, but I'm not just an executor. I'm, I'm running not just on my biography. More importantly, I'm running on my vision for this country and my understanding on constitutional grounds and statutory authority of how to actually get it done. And you say the administrative state, I, I hear regulatory state when you say that, I think that's what you mean. And you were one of the I mean. first people, yeah. And I, you were one of the first people I heard uh, talk about the capture or the, the cozy relationship between corporate and government uh, and that that needs to be disentangled. Then I heard that theme again from RFK Jr. I, 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 I am persuaded that that is a much more pervasive and serious problem than we can even imagine and really won't know until we start unraveling it. Is that something you're going to go at right away? 
absolutely. I mean, one of the things I've said is that on day one, I would issue an executive order requiring every government bureaucrat in that administrative state, that regulatory state, the three letter agencies in Washington, D.C., to at least make public through sunshine, the public can see it. Anytime they have pressured a private company or private actor to do something that the government could not legally accomplish on its own. We need to roll that log over and see what crawls out. Tell the truth again in government. Government officials haven't told the truth for a very long time. My campaign slogan is one word, truth. And that is the way I will govern is the first step to fixing the corruption is to see it. We got to roll that log over, not only see what crawls out, but I'll be bringing the pesticide. But that's something that I'm very focused on. These are, I've written two of my three books are ex about exactly this merger of state power and private power to together accomplish what neither can on its own. One area where we see it is on internet censorship, where the government can't censor speech directly. So what do they do? They do through the back door what government couldn't do through the front door. They pressure and they give carrots and sticks, use both carrots and sticks to get companies like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter to be able to silence speech that the government couldn't directly. We now know that government officials were pressuring executives at Twitter specifically to silence the account of one individual who is critical of the government's policy on of its handling of COVID-19. Whether or not you agree with the government's policy handling of COVID-19, we do not and should not want to live in a country where government officials can silence the critics of government. If the First Amendment was created to protect against anything, it is that. Same thing with respect to the so-called ESG movement, environmental, social, and governance factors in capital markets. What do we see? You have a Green New Deal that couldn't pass through Congress. Well, Biden's climate czar, John Kerry, is now effectively has boasted about it, worked with banking CEOs to get them to sign a sort of climate pledge, a North America net zero agreement instead. That's not democracy. That's not a constitutional republic. That's not capitalism. It's a form of, and I use this word intentionally in the sense, in the strict sense that Mussolini first used this word. It's a kind of fascism, a merger of state power and corporate power to accomplish what neither could on its own. It's what I, in my first book, called the woke industrial complex. But really, this isn't a left wing or a right wing issue. This is a fundamental American issue. We fought a revolution in 1776 to say that we, the people, decide how we settle our political differences through free speech and open debate in the public square where everyone's voice and vote counts equally. That's how we we're supposed to do things in America, not to have it done through the back door where a bunch of business elites and labor elites and church leaders get together behind closed doors in the old world and decide in the back of palace halls how the rest of society ought to be governed. That is not how we do things here in America. That was a 1776 moment, a revolution in 1776. I think we live in a sort of 1776 moment today where we would do well to remember those ideals of self-governance over aristocracy. This dream that our founding fathers had, frankly, a dream that I have as a citizen today, that the people who we elect to run the government should be the ones who actually run the government, not the three people in the three-letter agencies who were never elected and not the people who they're deputizing now in the private sector to do their dirty work instead. So that's a central part of my vision. You're right to point it out. And we have a new threat to that uh, rising above sovereign voted sovereign authorities that have been voted in place, which is the World Health Organization has a massive plan for usurping control over all governments. It's the most astonishing document I've ever seen in my life. And yet there seems to be little... Um, concern in our in our government about this it, to me it feels like one of the biggest threats ever are you familiar with this i am and i think that we should stop funding organizations that are fundamentally hostile to our sovereignty if the u.s stops funding the who so goes the who and so it should go in my opinion yeah, that would be the end of that. I, I'm guessing by what you uh, just your comments you just made that you were as shocked by the Twitter files as many people. Are you shocked that people weren't shocked by the Twitter files? That to you me was one of the most shocking aspects of the Twitter files. I'm actually I'm actually going to be very honest with you. I wasn't shocked, and the reason I wasn't shocked is I was writing about this two years earlier. So in January of 2021, 
I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. There are already enough breadcrumbs putting the pieces together. I co-wrote it with a former law professor of mine from Yale, where we said that it was clear that the government was using a combination of threats and inducements to get private companies to do through the back door what they couldn't get done through the front door. And at the time, yeah. what I said was dismissed roundly as a conspiracy theory, so much so it was beyond the pale that I was still CEO of my biotech company at the time. Three prominent advisors to my biotech company ceremoniously resigned on the back of that op-ed. Can you believe that? So wow. it's interesting. So, so then years later, right, it becomes what what I, you know, and, and, and Jed in that piece clearly identified as it, there was enough breadcrumbs to be clear this was the essence of what was happening. Years later, what do we know? We see it. What surprised me was how much more pervasive and regular it was, but the fact that it was happening, this was evident to me, you know, two years before it had even been unveiled. But I think that that's important because one of the things that happens is in a society, once your rights get taken away, at first you should be appalled by it. But when you start getting dulled to that reality, that's really when the danger for fuller totalitarianism sets in. History teaches us that time and again. And so we should be appalled. I'm sorry to say as a citizen, and partly because this is because I have been, you know, living, eating, breathing this set of threats to our liberty. Yes, I did spot that. So I personally wasn't surprised. But I think it's important for people to have that sense of shock and dismay, because if they don't, that's just the beginning of the end of accepting the loss of our liberty. And that's a one-way slide once we're further down that road. Yeah, it's that part that I found so astonishing, which was that people didn't understand that's what it was. They seemed to, yeah. I mean, your clairvoyance was was fascinating. But in terms of looking at this as just, you know, government officials doing their job, it's like, you have got to be kidding me. This is no, no, this no, is no. a, sh not in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like this. And again, the, the entirety, so many things, uh, so many scales fell from my eyes as a result of COVID. Uh, and so in a, in a strange way, that whole experience did us a, a great favor. Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy is here with me. I'm going to take a little break, do some business. Again, you can uh, find out more at Vivek, V-I-V-E-K, 2024.com. And uh, we'll talk a little bit, maybe you and I, more about uh, pharma and the cozy relationship with the FDA and what you learned as a founder of a, of a biopharmaceutical company. Great. Be right back. I suspect you've seen Susan and I gushing over Paleo Valley products. We love the taste and how well they fit into a paleo-based nutrition regimen. They're delicious and we use them for travel all the time. But there is more. We are huge fans as well of Paleo Valley's grass-fed bone broth protein. It comes in three flavors, unflavored, vanilla and chocolate. It's a powder you can add to really anything. We add it to coffee literally every day. Smoothies, baked dishes, or just hot water dissolves really easily. The bone broth protein is made with 100% grass-fed and finished bones that are free from pesticides or antibiotics and are slow simmered to extract as much collagen as possible. As we age, collagen breaks down. That's what wrinkles are. And research shows that there are significant benefits to adding a collagen source in your diet. I don't think it's too much to say it's changed our lives. And Susan is now reporting that after drinking the bone broth for a few weeks, her hair is stronger and longer and nails are stronger too. Try it for yourself. You can order at drdrew.com slash paleovalley and use Dr. Drew at checkout to save an additional 15%. A lot of you have been asking for more information about how to counter the adverse effects of the spike protein from COVID infections and the COVID vaccine. The spike protein is not your friend. Let's just say that. So I'm glad we have the wellness company Spike Support Formula as a sponsor especially since renowned internist and cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, who's also chief scientific officer of the wellness company, is one of its champions. There's some very intriguing research around natokinase, which might be a way to take on the spike protein. Listen to this. So start, if you would, with talking about natokinase, how you got to that and where you see its application. So with the viral infection or the vaccines, the spike protein stays within the body and it's found in the heart, the brain, the vital organs, and is causing problems. The Japanese have been using this for heart and vascular disease now for 20 years. It's safe. It is a form of a mild blood thinner that it dissolves the spike protein nearly completely. Spike support formula is the only product on the market containing natokinase, dandelion root, and a host of other antioxidants all showing promise in helping you protect yourself and your family. To order this unique, specially formulated supplement, go to drdrew.com slash TWC. That is drdrew.com slash TWC. Use code DREW at checkout for 10% off today. President Trump recently issued a warning from his Mar-a-Lago home, quote, 
Our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard, which will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar. Inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is, there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval dating back to biblical times, gold. And you can own it in a tax-sheltered retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k, maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just visit birchgold.com drew for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. I do not give financial advice, and previous performance is no guarantee of future performance. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to get your free info kit on gold. That is B-I-R-C-H-G-O-L-D dot com slash D-R-E-W. We're here uh, today again with Vivek Ramaswamy, entrepreneur, Republican candidate for 2024 U.S. presidential election. The books are uh, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, A Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and Capitalist Punishment. These are all very interesting books. Um, Woke Inc., particularly, I enjoyed. And Vivek, uh, we were talking before the break about your experience as a uh, as a entrepreneur, uh, biopharmaceutical company. I did not realize how cozy the relationship was between uh, pharma and the FDA. Uh, I saw something, what I thought was just hysterical and, and inappropriate, but hysterical. Marjorie Taylor Greene was interviewing Rochelle Walensky and just said, which pharmaceutical company are you gonna work for when you leave this job at the CDC? And I thought, inappropriate, but hysterical, that we're there, you know, where that's the way people think about the people that are in these regulatory bodies. What did you learn working with the FDA? You had said you had four FDA-approved medication. Yeah, five, uh, actually. Yep. You went through that in five. And so you've been through that process from, you know, whether the molecule comes off the shelf, uh, or I don't know what stage in the, in the development you got into it, but obviously getting it approved on yep. average cost about $800, $800 million, if I'm getting my numbers correct. Um, Probably more was, than yeah, that. Yeah, above that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, $1.2 yep. billion. $2 billion if you count approved. the failures. But... You're dead on with this with this relationship. It's this weirdly codependent relationship between the FDA and pharma. Funny little fact: not a lot of people know this. Even the organizational structures of the pharmaceutical industry and big pharma is an industry that irritates me like none other. It behaves like a government in its own right. In many ways, the bureaucracy is itself like down to the job titles modeled on the equivalent counterpart titles at the FDA. So it's an industry Perfect. built on a government granted monopoly. That's what the patent system is. But combine that with actually a regulatory, highly regulated industry where it's not just the final step that, okay, you submit your application, the FDA approves the product or not. No, that is not how it works. They have say over every micro step you take along the way. And they apply the standards pretty much capriciously. It has nothing to do with science, everything to do with effectively a political decision masquerading in the veneer of science. If you need any better proof hmm. of that, look at the fact that they say that drugs, even the ones I've developed and, and other vaccines, I haven't worked on vaccines, but you know, in, in my in my tenure, what I was focused on were, were small molecules and biologics, but the same can be said of vaccines. It takes 10 years and X amount of cost to be able to do it. But somehow <laughs> in the COVID-19 pandemic, it was perfectly acceptable to say that on one hand, you cannot get a product and we cannot trust the safety or effectiveness unless we have this 10 plus year cycle and we're going to regulate that in a painful way in an encumbering way at every step but now we're going to have a vaccine that's developed in a year or less than a year and be so confident in its risk benefit proposition that not only are we going to prove it but be part of a government that mandates its widespread usage you cannot believe these two things at the same time which shows it is just literally arbitrary and capricious. And I use that standard intentionally. It's a concept from administrative law that says if, if a government agencies are literally arbitrary and capricious, as so many government regulations are, including those from the FDA, that means they're unlawful. It means they're unconstitutional. And I think that the Supreme Court today is thankfully a Supreme Court that's slowly waking up to that in West Virginia versus EPA held accordingly in the more recent case that, that struck down the student loan forgiveness program that the Department of Education took upon itself. 
most regulations passed by the administrative state, I think, are fundamentally unconstitutional, unlawful. And the same goes for the FDA as well. But you know who gives them cover, of course, are the people that they regulate. See, the people that they regulate are big pharma who will come back and say, no, 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 this is exactly how it has to be, which adds credibility to the FDA because they'll say that, oh, well, even the people we're regulating, see, they're saying how necessary this is. It's a classic. It's the oldest trick in the book. If you're a big incumbent, you want that regulator because it actually makes it harder for new competition, which allows you to actually wield the price control that you already have or the, or the market power that you already wield. So it is incestuous. You're right to point it out. It's discouraging. As an entrepreneur, there were certain aspects of that that created inefficiencies that allowed me to develop medicines in areas that pharma had almost systematically abandoned. Came at great you know, time and cost and risk, but thankfully that is a multi-billion dollar company that I developed. And the good news is I'm proud of a lot of the work that I did that many other innovative biotech companies have done. One of the therapies that I worked on is a therapy in kids for a rare genetic disease where 20 kids a year are born with this genetic disease that 100% of them die by the age of three if they're untreated. A majority of those kids live lives of a normal duration if they're treated. That's you know a heartening story. I developed a drug for prostate cancer, a number of other diseases that I oversaw the development of medicines on that are approved products today. So there's a lot of good that can come from it. So it's not that it's it, like you, you're, you're a physician. My wife's a physician. I, I you know trained as a molecular biologist. We stand on the side of science and advancement. But in the name of science, there's actually a culture of crony capitalism in that incestuous relationship between the FDA and pharma that has nothing to do with science and everything to do with advancing the self-interests of, of the people who are on either side of that relationship. And I understand that better than most because I've lived it. But now I'm also going to be unapologetic yeah. in calling it out. Yeah, so so true and, and quite accurate. I'm just curious. I, I work with an organization called the Prostate Cancer Foundation. We fund... Oh. Uh, a lot of creative. Yeah, I'm sure some whatever you were. What what did you develop? Well, Religolix was the single therapy. But actually, the reason I mentioned the prostate cancer so it's a it's a therapy for an earlier stage prostate cancer in men, not for the metastatic prostate cancer later on. But yeah, my yeah. Uh, my my father in law is actually one of the top prostate cancer surgeons in the country as well. Who's also been involved with that? He's the chair of urology at Mount Sinai, and so I've gone oh, to how prostate cancer foundation events in the past as well. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll I'll, I'll look for you there <laughs> out yeah. on Long Island or something. They've got some. Yeah. So yeah. I'll look for you there. That's it's been a great, been, been an amazing. I, I'm yeah. surprised. I'm so sick. And, and I'm, and I, uh, I'm, I am so delighted to be a part of their organization. I mean, they're just, they're really handing over significant sums of money to brilliant young researchers and saying, just do, do what you want. And there's almost nothing like that. The the other part now, you you just this because this is in the weeds a little bit. But you express your frustration with the face with with big pharma, but yep. they're the ones that get stuck with with um, funding and executing the phase three trials, don't they? I mean, that other, no one has the money and the size and the reach to do that. Is that I I I once talked to the uh, cabinet, you know. Uh, level HHS director. And I said, you know, what, what are we going to do with that? He did not have a good plan. Do you have something, any way of, of sort of getting at that? Is, is computer modeling going to be a, what, what, what do you think when you sort of sit well, down I and think, that, think creatively yeah. about that issue? So first of all, the number of phase three trials often required is just totally arbitrary and capricious by FDA. In many cases, you you would only need okay. one, but they require two, which is laughable because in certain other cases, if it's a COVID vaccine, somehow you know, they'll be fine with it, even if it doesn't meet a normal phase three standard, right? Yeah, so, so I think that right. in many cases, the double phase three trial standard is actually just a literally duplicative cost when a single phase three study, especially when that comes after phase two, could have done the job. You're right. Mostly it's big pharma companies that only have the capacity to do those phase three studies. That's why I actually, in building the company that I did, Royvent, that did develop, I think Royvent's, you know, run upwards of, you know, 10 phase three studies most of which have been successful, mm. but I had to raise billions of dollars as an entrepreneur to do it, to break over that wow. barrier to entry. And it was frustrating that many of those involved two phase three studies when it could have just been one. Just from a societal perspective, yeah. it's a it's it's a little bit of yeah. a dead weight, if not waste, pretty close to waste of funds that effectively end up passed down to the consumer. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I I understand why we ended up with a vaccine uh, that was brought out before it was sent through the usual uh, mill of of uh, determining its efficacy and, and safety. It was, it was it was an emergency. They rolled it out in an emergent way and took lots of risk. The the, the astonishing thing to me, the mystery to me, is 
Why are they not going back and doing the studies they should have done in the first place? Well, there are a lot of questions still. Why are we not doing that? Why isn't somebody asking them to do that? Yeah, I mean, myocarditis and other issues in particular. But but my point is even like before getting into the sort of the political nature of that, pointing out an obvious disconnect, saying that for these for other vaccines, and there are still people dying of a wider range of diseases, you know, of, of for other medicines, other urgent conditions that medicines could make a difference on to say, no, no, it has to be a 10 year cycle. Whereas here, it was perfectly fine, not only to be approved, but even to be mandated on the back of a one-year cycle. You can't consistently believe those, both those things at the same time without at least some element, Drew, of humility. And I think that was the missing element of this. It's one thing to say that we are oh. not sure, but in an emergency circumstance, yeah. we're going to tell you the facts. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't and empower you to make your choice. But the so-called noble lie, I think if there's one lesson from, from, from the COVID experience that we had to take away, two lessons maybe, the path to truth, including the scientific method itself, depends on free speech and open debate, not silencing dissent. Yeah. And the second thing is yep. there's no such thing as a noble lie. People will not believe you even when you tell the noble lie. Every lie is it is ignoble. And that's actually what we need to learn yeah. is there was purposeful lies told, in the, even in the interest of supposedly helping the public. And those have to be two of the big lessons from that entire experience. Yeah, I I, so. I sometimes think the truth truth. I, I know you have some other ideas yes. about uh, founding principles, and I'm going to get to that in a second. But I, I sometimes think the truth may be the thing that could reunite us because the, the lies just uh, just are pernicious in terms of their effect. And you may not remember this; you're a little younger. To but there was a movie called A Few Good Men. I think it was a Kubrick. Oh, of course, no. you can't no. handle the truth. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Jack Nicholson was the villains. Those those words came out of a villain's you mouth can't handle and was looked at from That's right. And, yep. and by the way, as somebody who was relatively liberal at the time and there were a lot of liberal people that that took that as the example of why their side was right because they made an effort to be open and honest and not, would never take the position that the was somebody in authority knows best and you can't handle the truth. I love that. I love that. You need me on that wall. Is <laughs> a great Jack Nicholson <laughs> quote. It's in the, in the avatar of Anthony right. Fauci and 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 the administrative state today. So listen, Drew, I love this. You know, uh, I think your team may have been aware of this. I had a hard. I, I gotta. I gotta actually run, but hopefully, there's yeah. the beginning of yes. more conversations that we have. I, I love your thoughtful approach. I appreciate I, I it. you for I, it. I'll look for you to Prostate Cancer Foundation uh, yes. event sometime soon. I know you do hundred of these a day, and I appreciate you spending a little time with us. So thank you so much. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. Take care. Honor is ours. Thank you, Vivek Ramaswamy. Again, Vivek 2024 is where you can find more. 20, Vivek2024.com. Twitter, Vivek G. Ramaswamy. Uh, Susan, I think you have the Twitter spaces on. She's putting it on right now. I'm going to see if anybody has their hand up, wants to take any call, take any, ask any questions. I was locked out. Here we go. Drew has a way of getting locked out of TikTok and Twitter, so I have to give him my phone. Yes, I've got her phone now. That used to be my phone. Long story. I dropped a, <laughs> dropped a phone in the shower. Uh, I'd be interested in what you guys uh, thought of what he was saying, and uh, you're welcome to just raise your hand here over the Twitter spaces, and I will uh, call you on up to ask a question if I you're I think you got censored on TikTok, though. We got censored on TikTok. Uh, yes, that's what it oh, is. Oh, before, uh, yeah. There's I, I, my. I'm having trouble getting on TikTok. There is a little cartoon about how you get onto the uh, to be a questioner here. You just click on that button at the lower left hand corner, and again, remember to unmute yourself. I, we are well aware there's a little delay there, and so this is. Uh, he was fabulous. Yeah, you liked him. Good. Um, of lay deplorables. Oh, and you took he your. He says hand everything down. that we say. <laughs> Well, he, he, look, he's a brilliant dude. Uh, I didn't even have a chance. I know he had to go. I wanted to get into the first principle ideas he had. We were sort of skating around some of that. And what I wanted to ask him was what he would say to someone who says that these first principles that were uh, developed by the founding fathers and some gr great thoughts and great, you know, uh, states persons, great statesmen, um, aren't relevant anymore because it was created by old white men who were slave owners, and that's that. And therefore, we shouldn't listen to any of it. Tom Cigar says he's sensible. Let's cancel him. Joking. You bet. Well, <laughs> that's that kind of thing happens. Again, none of you have your hand up that I can see. I, I'm happy to ask other questions, uh, answer other questions. I think as we well. took everybody by surprise. There, I, of, I see oh, people. Okay. I see people. You might. You see, might just. Uh, let me. I, I, I see, see hand waving. Right. I see Caleb can pick somebody. I see lots of other things, but I don't see the um, actual. Caleb's actually in charge. Let him do it. 
Yes, I, Caleb, I do you am want the to pick doctor. Somebody? Yeah, okay. I'll pick someone right now. All right. Let's see, uh, Brandon. Uh, you just have to. Brandon, I'm gonna put Brandon on. Tell right me now. who they are. Okay, Brandon. You're a child in the background. Brandon, what's happening there? A little delay, and you have to of course, unmute the uh, lower. Thank you. There you are, Brandon. What's going on? Me to speak. I just want to ask uh, the presidential candidate. Um, how do you plan to um, change the economy so that it works for the majority of Americans uh, in the United States and that we don't have a recession that occurs um, under your leadership because the president is ultimately responsible yeah. for the economy. And that's a big factor. Yeah, in Brandon, I, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you. You may not be aware that he, he has left. Uh, that's why we've gone to the phones, but he did address that about two thirds of the way through. Maybe it's more like a halfway through. He talked about uh, stabilizing currency. He talked about how, what his plan would be for 4% growth. He would uh, dismantle the regulatory state. I, I can't remember the very specifics, but he, and there were not a lot of specifics given. He was just sorting in broad strokes, talking about how he would get to that, uh, how he would get to that 4% uh, growth rate from the 1% we're at right now. And uh, we can keep going there, Caleb. I'm pulling out the next one right now. Yeah, just so everybody knows, he's gone, so don't ask questions for him. Well, you can ask, you know, I mean, we can discuss together some of the things he said. Yeah, I, I, I wish he could stay, but... Drew, uh, he, he had, he, they, this, is, this is Travis coming on now. Travis. Okay, Travis. And he was uh, he was clear that, you know, before he sat down, that they do 100 of these a day, they said, and that he is really busy. So I'm, I'm he pleased he's a spent, mile a minute. He's, he's a got his, he's got, he, he's a brilliant guy. He went to Yale Law School. Let me be clear, not anybody goes to Yale Law School. It's a, it's a elite crowd intellectually. And he was a, a, he studied genetics, essentially. We used to call it molecular biology when he was in college at Harvard. And then he ran a biotech firm. Uh, and that this is, this is really uh, you know, um, rarefied air individual in terms of his intellect. Travis, I got you there. Just unmute that uh, microphone and ask your question. Oh, there we are. There you are. Can you hear me? Yep, right. I got you. Great. Thanks All for right. having me on. You bet. Yeah, Thanks for coming question. on. Um, I missed the first part of Mr. Ronswani's, uh Space, but I'll have to listen to it later. But I guess my question would be to you and him both, as far as the uh, state of Washington I live in, and Jay Inslee and the Attorney General during COVID, not allowing doctors to prescribe uh, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and even yeah. monoclonal antibodies. My grandmother had yeah. COVID. We tried to get that stuff for him. Uh, her doctor said if he prescribed it, he'd lose his license. And then it took them a week to even offer monoclonal antibodies, which at that point was too late. Yeah. And, and, um, and then as soon as she got in the hospital, because, you know, they wouldn't give her anything. As soon as she got in the hospital, they gave her um, remdesivir, which I'm hearing later on is something that or caused people's organs to shut down. And her organs shut down within like four days of her being in the hospital. Catastrophe. And then my dad was uh, appreciate that. Um, and then my dad was, you know, in the same boat. And I called doctors all around, and finally was able to get ivermectin for him from a place in Texas. And it ended up, and, and it's not just ivermectin. You know, I'm, I'm sure as well as you know, it's not. There's not one drug that's gonna be the savior of anything right you know we got him that's right a bunch of stuff but uh, he look, was better the, with the it. the fact the the one of the, the you probably not it seems like you've not been on these uh streams before but um we've been talking about this for <laughs> two years yeah two years which is uh, yeah the fact that physicians were prevented from practicing medicine autonomously as they've always done and use their uh, their ability to improvise and do what they think is on the best interest of that patient sitting in front of them is criminal and the fact that if they had been, and, and by the way, some of the physicians were duplicitous in this in the sense that they just said, go home, come back when your PO2 is 82. Uh, we should have been using exactly. steroids. We now know that fluvoxamine, there were things we could have done just following up. Just, I mean, we've lost track of the fact that just paying attention 
to a patient has massive effect on the outcomes of an illness. All right, my dad was an old family practitioner. He always said, you never get in trouble seeing your patient too often. And I'll never forget that. And so I've sort of made that a policy of mine. No, there's so many things about this, my friend, that, make, that are just disgusting. Uh, it, it just was, uh, it, it can never happen again. And the fact that the World Health Organization is asking for the authority to do it all over again, and maybe on a larger yeah. scale with greater authority, this is what we must be talking about all the time. I did bring all that up with him, and uh, he was uh, not, in, not in favor of it, let's say. Great. So Thanks, Travis. I'll have yeah. to listen to that. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. We didn't get into the specific. I, I'm so sorry that all happened here. Yeah, Just, sorry, I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I am, I'm new to And let me tell you this. So. I, I, I'll tell you one more thing. Which is, I, I was on a Twitter Spaces the other day, and um, Aaron Cariotti is somebody you ought to follow. He's a psychiatrist who lost his job as a head of bioethics at UC Irvine in California. And he lost the, his job as the head of bioethics because he felt it was unethical to have a vaccine mandate for college-age students where the risk-benefit was not clear. He lost his job for walking the walk of a bioethicist and now he's become quite a champion of all these things and he said the one thing that should happen is this are the regulators certainly your government officials in the state of washington and those of us that are physicians should apologize and I, I am ashamed of my profession. I'm ashamed of the way we behaved, and I apologize. I'm disgusted by it, and it can never happen again. Thanks, Travis. I would like to say I heard you on the uh, space. Uh, who's the other guy that does the big spaces you were on? And you did apologize. Uh, Mario Nawal. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Mario, yeah. That, that was I the only other time I had done that. You're you're reminding me of that. It's the only other time I had done it explicitly was on that spaces, and I've never. I'm, I'm on a stream here on multiple platforms, and this is the first time I've done it here. And and I I, I have no problem apologizing for what is reprehensible. I I and it wasn't I my behavior. Even, job I'm to sure. Apologize though, really. Well, it is no, my job because I'm a member of this prof. No, this apologize. profession. This profession. My profession is to apologize, and I think it could go a long yeah. way if we made every effort to do so. Even though we individually, as a member of this profession, may have not been guilty of some of this, we still can share in the apology, and we should do so to help. we got to restore faith in my profession somehow, and that is the starting point. We are trained as physicians, when we make a mistake, to apologize immediately, swiftly, and surely to reduce the risk of malpractice. We are trained on that. And yet here we are on a large scale with a major, call it what you will, a, mal a malfunction at least, if not malpractice, we should be apologizing. Swiftly, surely, right. certainly, seems to me, humbly. Well, I can, so there I you can go. tell you firsthand, I uh, was dating a gal that she, her brother, two of her brothers are doctors here. And, you know, it's just straight out of fear. I mean, he could have prescribed something, but it's just fear. You know, you have this lifestyle that you're used to. And then they're using the pressure of, okay, what happens if he loses? I mean, that's like my friend, the pilot. If he loses his pilot license, he can't fly for Alaska Airlines anymore, you know? And they have yeah. this lifestyle and, that and, they're used to, so that's scary. Well, Travis, and, and yes, it's I'm unfair. sure the money is an issue. Well, the money is an issue, but I got to tell you more so, uh, I can tell you, that your very identity gets tied up in being a physician, and so when people threaten that, oh, for sure, it, it, it's almost a, it's too. almost yeah. a uh, it becomes a, a a mortality kind of thing. You know, it becomes something that's that you fight against. Susan, you seem to want to say something. I see you kind of leaning in. What physicians don't want to lose their license, and there's so much threat. There was like, I'm yeah. going to take your license for. For offering ivermectin i mean even on twitter like we got well, still, we got attacked constantly for just and saying i was anything. not a big yeah i wasn't i'm not a big advocate of that i didn't see any evidence that it was a good thing I mean, we got censored on youtube we were you know running from the law it was like <laughs> bizarre <laughs> running from the law doctors are very logical people but they also wanted you know well they're keep, also people and they, they get scared do their best to, yeah, they get to continue their well, and service. also they have group think too they're, it's a cult i mean it says all these all these tribes all these tribes uh are mis are, are the source of many of our ills right now and there's a right tribe and a left tribe there's a physician tribe and there's tribes within medicine and, and politics so, and medicine do not work together so that was always what i was saying it's like just stop listening to the 
the politicians and let the doctors do their freaking job. Susan's on fire today. How about that? Let's bring up China and then watch Susan go nuts. So, <laughs> so, so one more call. Oh, China okay, and give Russia. Me, give me Don't get one. me started on I, China I'm going to invite a Chinese, na a Chinese national, a Chinese um, immigrant who is a very funny comedian I interviewed today with Adam. And I thought she'd be great on this show to really, for Susan, for you to ask a bunch of questions of her. And she is hilarious. She was Miss Universe in China. <laughs> And in, and in China, they call it... That's a big deal. They call it queen of the universe. Oh, yeah. And, uh, That's like being like a figure skater, and, and, you know? And, yeah, yeah. And she said that uh, she had a terribly abusive tiger mom and all that stuff. And she has a whole story to tell. So it's very, very interesting. Very funny. Okay, and now she's a comedian. And of course, the, the mom says, not only have you shamed her, she shamed the mom. You put a put a bullet in Mao's head. You put a, put a bullet in, the, in the very, every, everybody in China. Oh yeah, uh, one more. Uh, is that uh, Michelle? Michelle or is that a Michelle? Michelle. Hey. Yeah. Hi, Doctor <laughs> Drew. I, I really just first want to appreciate the fact that you bring these interesting people into this space. But having listened yeah. to Doctor Ramaswamy, I could find myself very intrigued by what he has to offer, but I can't see a snowball's chance in hell that he could ever gain the popular vote. Do you? What? You know, I, I you know, th th it seems to me the voting public seems so capricious now. I have no idea. Yeah. I, I, I hope what I hope is we have some really interesting candidates this time. And for me, Vivek and RFK, I don't think are going to be our next president, but I believe strongly they are stirring things in a very positive way. They're bringing up a lot of things that people are just what we're going to elect have been silencing. Guy again? Like what the hell? Well. That I uh, I don't sorry. know, but I I, I I'm <laughs> sorry, Michelle, I Susan. I yeah. I am I like I'm so moderate. I'm independent. I sit right in the middle. Though I'm contemplating uh, switching to Democrat, which I've been over the years, to uh, be able to vote vote in the primary for RFK Jr. Really, just because he is raising so many interesting I want a ideas. Millennial. Well, it's Vivek. You can vote for him. You, you know, uh, that's what I that's what I was thinking he, too. Yeah, it would be lovely to have that sort of. No, I live in Kansas, and we're very conservative here. But just his his conversation just seems so real. And so here's what I would do. And I'm not finding that in some RFK. I would agree with you there. He has some interesting thoughts as well. I just don't know that he would have a snowball's chance. Although versus a brain dead gentleman, certainly he would have a much better chance. I would think. Well, so I, I just be, think that the. the 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 conversation is elevated these days. It's better. It's more interesting. Things are being proposed that have never been contemplated, and and it, it's people are stirred by it. I think it's engaging people better, and it's making people think about things a little more. I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's very 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 positive. I, I if you know in my perfect world, RFK would really pick up on some steam, so people mm -hmm. would have to address some of the things he's raising, and then who's president? I. I you know, I don't and have to switch also, in California, Emily Barsh is. Oh, is that also, true? Are you get to vote in the primaries? As an independent, it seems like I wasn't voting in the primaries. Also, what can I don't even know what I'm registered anymore. <laughs> you can, you can, in California, you can, you can, you can re-register every 10 minutes, every minute. I haven't voted like. in like 10 years. So. Uh, what's that, Caleb? Yeah. Also, just keep in mind that the, the host of The Apprentice got 75 million votes. So everything <laughs> is possible now. <laughs> like anything is possible. The Apprentice. Imagine the hey debate man, stage, I, though. Imagine the debate stage yeah, with some of these candidates. Well, I can't wait for that. That's what I want to see. Yeah, I'm with you on that. That that's the part I'm excited about. But uh, I I was around in a day when people were like, "I'm an actor is going to be the president. An actor is running for president. Can you imagine that? What kind of world do we live in where an actor runs for president?" Oh, my parents were so excited. About well, because mm -hmm. he had been governor. Yeah. There's yeah. Like yeah. Well, Mine Michelle, too. thank Ronald you so Reagan much. Thank you, That's guys. Thanks so much. California's Take care. blue. <laughs> appreciate you listening, you two. And everybody, thank you all for being here. We appreciate it. Let me let me head over to the restream and quickly look at what's going on over there. Jeez, uh, oh, they picked up on your uh, brain-dead comments. Yeah, well, I'm apolitical. I, I just not, like not rational anymore. It people. seems like, it seems like <laughs> yeah, you, uh, I, I, you, you're getting like very anti-China. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just... I'm just observing, you know, his you, you, Let's his put abilities. it this way. I, I'm not saying whether You are not, not a political person, but you have developed some feelings about all this stuff. I'm not right. I'm not left. Yeah, I may yeah. be libertarian. I don't even know. Well, talk to your friend, Kat Temp. Maybe uh, I am registered libertarian. I can't remember. I can't. I'm yeah. old. I can't remember.
Okay, well, I don't see anything I want to comment over on the restream. You guys have been very active there. We appreciate that. Uh, Zelensky is an actor, as Serena points out, which is true, and a comedian, comedic actor, I believe. Uh, yeah, there's so much going on in the Ukraine. I don't know if you guys are keeping track of that, but it... it oh, there's the upcoming guest. Let's, let's talk about something positive. Uh, the, the Ukraine thing has me very concerned. And Russia, yeah. Uh, and all, I think they're more dead than we even... Well, France, we're oh. going to France in a couple of weeks. I was going to ask you if you back about France too, but um, we're going to interview. I don't think, I've, I've I don't asked, think we really have a lot to I've asked our France. producer to book a guy who I heard on a Twitter spaces who was very articulate about the French situation and seemed to under, have a good grasp of it. So I'm going to get him in here soon. And he was saying that the French government needs to be over, not overturned, but restructured as the Republic. It was a republic, much the way we need to really think about. We are not a direct democracy, though in California we are, whether we like it or not, we are. But we were designed as a republic. And uh, direct democracy was always one of the things that the founding uh, or f folks, the founding fathers, uh, feared the most because they always broke down. They always, in history, they just studied history and they looked at what worked and they applied it. Let me go back to the what's coming up. Kat Lindley and her tomorrow. Dr. Kelly Victory joins us, of course. I believe we are moving to Friday from Thursday. Susan, is that correct? Yep. Uh, we have uh, Chef Gruel coming in. I saw him interviewed by Viva Friday. Kat Timpf That'll be going to co-host. Oh, no kidding? Oh, good. That's Friday? She's here. She'll be here in the studio. We'll oh. try to widen the lens Perfect. a little. That'll be great. That's have a... somebody cute in here. Oh, she's All right, hilarious. So we'll do a little libertarian. Hilarious. She just a... did a great job in... Yeah, she did a great job on well, After Dark. Well, we're not really supposed to say. But. You can. Uh, and uh, Dr. Rancourt in here with Kelly on the following Wednesday. Mark McDonald, psychiatrist, outspoken dude, speaks about mass formation and other things. He'll be in here on July 13th. And uh, you can see all the other guests up there that we had just listed. Thank you all for being here. We appreciate seeing you on the restream. We love you being there on the Twitter spaces. We appreciate the participation. Do tell a friend about this um, this stream show. Uh drdrew.tv please sign up there to get a get a blast when we go on and look back on some of the shows we've done we've been doing these for a while now and we have interviewed some very interesting people and although i have not agreed with everyone i've interviewed i've learned something from every single one we are putting the pieces together of what we have all been through and we've learned something about ourselves our government our public health system and why things were so bizarre during covid and uh how important it is we all commit ourselves to not letting anything like that ever happen again it's a relinquishing of our of our civil liberties that was on a scale that is unthinkable and and did nothing except cause a mental health crisis so we will leave it at that thank you so much for being here and uh we will see you on th friday no uh, tomorrow tomorrow's wednesday tomorrow's wednesday will be here no, tomorrow at three o'clock no, tomorrow's, tomorrow's july 4th, 4th. Oh, july. No, july. Happy independence day everybody wednesday. i was gonna i was gonna bring that up with vivek and i completely wednesday, forgot about it we will be back so yeah we're in new york so i'm all screwed up on time zones and days and everything you've been so, having way too so much fun fourth of july tomorrow everybody enjoy that holiday and we'll see you on wednesday with dr kelly victory three o'clock pacific time see you then ta-ta Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Yeah.